Are we worried about bringing life back to Earth from Mars? Is there a maximum mass that a black hole could be? And what happens when suns get too close? All this and more in this week's question show. Everyone, welcome to the question show your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are across my channel. If a question pops in your brain, just write it down on any of the YouTube questions. I will gather it up and I will answer them here. Now we record this show live every Monday at 5pm Pacific time. So if you want to come and join the live show, you definitely can. The show is much longer. We answer probably double to triple the questions. And so if you want more of that live question experience, you can join that. The other thing that we do is that now we, after we finish recording the live show, we make it unlisted. I know there's some playlists out there where you can go and follow them if you want. Um, but also we release the latest question show as well as the full unedited version when we release the patrons announcement every week. So if you want another way to find the full episode unedited, like warning unedited, you can do it that way as well. All right, let's get into the questions. Peter DeGreat, bringing samples back from Mars seems a little risky. Is there no concern about exoviruses? The problem of contaminating other worlds is pretty big and pretty complex for a bunch of reasons. Now, there are two kinds of contamination that you can kind of imagine. One is that when we send spacecraft to other worlds, we can contaminate that world. And that's a big problem. When you think about it, if we're going to send, say, some spacecraft that's designed to go to places on Mars that we know have liquid water maybe underneath the surface, and every spacecraft that we send from Earth is just going to be covered in cyanobacteria and tardigrades and all kinds of really hardy life forms, it's almost inevitable that these life forms are going to make it into that salty water, briny material. And then when we come back around, and we try to look for life on Mars, isn't it super weird? Everywhere we look, we just keep finding cyanobacteria. Are Earth and Mars related? Well, no, this cyanobacteria is like, has only diverged from Earth cyanobacteria like 10 years ago. Weird. I mean, we know like we have life forms on Earth that are really able to exploit almost any environment as long as there's water, life finds a way. And so that is one of the big reasons why you don't want to contaminate life. So that's one. And although there I mean, there are solutions to reduce the amount of contamination on your spacecraft, you can wash them, you can radiate them, you can attempt to be really careful about how you examine places on Mars, it's impossible to remove all of the Earth material from your spacecraft. So that's like an unsolved problem. <laughs> um, but the other one and the one that you're thinking about is this idea of back contamination that we go dig up some samples from Mars, and we bring those samples back down to Earth. And then we open up the samples, and they get out they turn into some kind of evil alien virus that takes over planet Earth. And obviously, that would be bad, that would be not preferred, the preferred would be to not have the alien bacteria take over the world. And to be honest, the risks of that are pretty low. Um, that Martian bacteria evolved to live on Mars 
Earth is a sort of higher energy place. The bacteria that lives here is very well suited for the environments that we have. And so it would be tricky for Martian life to really gain a foothold on Earth. And even if it did, like it never evolved to affect, you know, we didn't evolve co evolve with Martian bacteria or viruses. And so it's not like it's going to have a way to cause us problems. But the big issue is that we may once again, contaminate our samples, we open up the samples that we brought back from Mars, but somehow our pesky Earth life makes its way into the samples. And then what do you know, like Mars samples are filled with cyanobacteria again, and tardigrades, and these are fresh, <laughs> you know, like, oh, great, like we have infected all of these samples with Earth life. And now there's just no way to know if there was any life in there that came from Mars big problem. So there are a couple of solutions to this one solution is that you examine these samples in a place that isn't on Earth. And then you don't have to worry about them back contaminating one possibility is doing this on Mars. So when you have astronauts going to Mars, they set up a laboratory, and then they're able to look through the material on Mars. And if they find some kind of killer alien bacteria, then it only kills them. And it doesn't make its way back to Earth. It sounds like I'm writing a sci fi movie, or I'm sure I'm just like summarizing a 1000 sci fi movies. Anyway, the other idea, which I kind of like, is that you bring this stuff back to the International Space Station. And so then the samples come back to the ISS, the astronauts deal with it up there in space. And if there's any problem, then only the astronauts on the International Space Station get infected with Mars bacteria and go crazy and turn into tentacle monsters. But then you're not able to do the best possible science. So the plan right now is that when the samples from Mars come home, they're going to be held in a sealed capsule, they're going to be moved to a facility that is completely cut off from the Earth environment, they're going to be examined and maintained in this facility, with hopefully almost no way to contaminate it, both to make sure that you are dealing with actual Mars life, and also to prevent any of this Mars life from making it into Earth. Of course, you know, nothing is perfect. But the people who are working this feel reasonably confident that they're not going to Andromeda strain uh, the material that they find on Mars. You probably noticed the Star Wars planet name that appeared over my shoulder. And this is a way for you to vote for the question that you thought was the best. And last week, the winning vote was by Ryan Taylor wanting to know what happened to my fake backdrop, my uh, fake Canadian forest, my green screen, which of course, that's the running joke is that it never was fake that it was always real that I was always actually standing outside. And the reason that I don't do it anymore is because standing outside was very difficult from a production standpoint. And so now we do it inside in a nice, comfortable studio. Um, but anyway, so congratulations, Ryan, congratulations to me for answering. Um, so you're going to see these planetary names throughout this entire episode. And just at the end of the episode, after you've watched them all vote for the question that you thought was the best, and then we will count them up and we will celebrate the winning question next week. All right, on to the show. Larn out Lars. So I keep reading clips about this black hole that is at the theoretical maximum mass allowable. 
What would limit the mass of a black hole? Would there be a hypothetical consequence of trying to cross that line? Yeah, this idea of the theoretical limit of a black hole, I'm not sure where this came from, because astronomers keep finding quasars earlier and earlier in the universe, and they're surprised at how big these supermassive black holes already are, that they have put on more mass earlier than they ever thought in the universe. And it's making them start to question what are the underlying mechanisms for how these supermassive black holes come together. And we thought we knew those limits. And yet they keep finding larger and larger black holes. And so the original idea was that you had the first primordial hydrogen and helium left over from the Big Bang. And then some of this material collapsed down into the first stars, the first stars exploded, they enriched the surrounding material with heavier elements, those clouds collapsed down, they formed the first like proper stars, those stars exploded as supernova, they created black holes, the black holes found their way to each other, they merged with each other. And then the black holes that had merged and merged, they kept merging, and then you got supermassive black holes and larger supermassive black holes. And then you got one that has millions and eventually billions of times the mass of the sun. And this new black hole, the one that I'm sure you're talking about, I think it has like 30 billion times the mass of the sun, which is just terrifying. Like, I mean, it's just like a theoretically large number and good news, it's really, really far away. But boy, that is a massive black hole. And you're seeing it really far away as so you're seeing it earlier in the universe. And the question is like, how did it get so big so fast? And there are other ideas like, you know, that traditional idea of you just doing it the hard way with stars merging together and making bigger black holes. Like maybe those first stars that formed the population three stars, maybe they had 10s of 1000s of times the mass of the sun, and they formed black holes that were 10s of 1000s of times the mass of the sun. And so that first step when you got those first black holes, and they're finding their way to each other, you don't need all those intervening steps, you just got monster black holes merging with other monster black holes. Or maybe we have this idea of primordial mass black holes, maybe you've got these over dense regions in the early universe where black holes of all different sizes are forming just right out of the initial material that was available in the universe before even the cosmic microwave background radiation was released. Like you're looking at within the first 10 minutes of the universe, you could have black holes of varying size. Well, then maybe you could have a black hole that is a million times the mass of the sun that formed just a couple of minutes after the Big Bang, that could find another million mass, or maybe you just right away, you got a 30 billion mass sun right shortly after the Big Bang. And now it's just been gobbling up small pieces. And they're all just rounding errors for the size that it is. So how you get a black hole that big that early is still an unsolved question, still an interesting mystery to solve. But the question you're asking is, you know, is it the theoretical maximum mass allowable? And the answer is no. Now, when they say that it's kind of like saying, that is a big black hole. And we don't know how a black hole got that big so fast. But not that like that is as big as the laws of physics will permit a black hole to be. There are, is no limit to how massive a black hole can be. You could feed all of the mass and energy in the entire observable universe into a black hole, and it would be fine. It would just be a black hole with the mass of the observable universe. An interesting coincidence, a black hole with the mass of the observable universe is 
has an event horizon the size of the observable universe, but it's probably just a coincidence. So yeah, there's no limit. You can just keep feeding black holes because make them more and more massive forever. And they're fine. They just, they love it. Just keep feeding black holes. Manuel Pingas. If giant Fraser would pick up one son of ours in each hand and slowly brought them together, at what distance would we start to see the effect of gravity between them? I'm guessing complicated physics. It is complicated physics, but there's a relatively simple answer to this. And with every object like the sun or the earth, there is the effect of gravity that is sort of reaching out from that world or star. And as objects get closer and closer to the sun, then the force, the gravitational force on the front side of that object is so much stronger than the gravitational force on the back side of that object, that the object is sheared apart. And so this is known as the Roche limit. I'm sure people who are watching this video are going Roche limit. Yes, it's the Roche limit. So that point in space that is orbiting around the sun or the earth or the moon or anything, they have this thing called the Roche limit. And so if you get an object too close to that body, then it will pop itself in half. And then those halves will get popped in half. And eventually you'll end up with this stream of material that is going around it. It's the same idea as spaghettification, where you get in orbit around a black hole and a black hole pulls you in half, and then it pulls the halves in half, and it just pulls you into this stream of material that wraps you around the black hole before it gobbles you up. And so the sun has a Roche limit. Now, if you took planet Earth and you brought it close to the sun, once you got to about a million kilometers or so of the sun, the, the Earth would be torn apart and broken into crumbly pieces that would then orbit around the sun, and those pieces would eventually find their way down into the sun. And so you can imagine if you had two suns getting close to each other, you'd really have to get within about a million kilometers of each other before their Roche limits started to tear one another apart. And even that like you'd still, you know, stars, even though they are made of gas, they have a tremendous amount of gravity that is holding them together. And so you'd have to get really close, like almost touching take these two stars and bring them so they're almost touching, then they're starting to sort of pull off wisps of material from each other and spin around. And we see stars like this out in the universe. So there's a couple of sort of terms for this, but one is called an eclipsing binary. And so there are stars out there where the stars are so close to each other that they've got these kind of lobes of material that are being torn away from the two stars and are being transferred back and forth between the two stars. And eventually those stars will get closer and closer and closer and actually start to merge into one larger star. And if the stars aren't really massive to begin with, then you just end up with a much more massive star that sometimes will turn a little bluer and sort of act like a baby star again, or like a large star again. But if the stars are massive enough, then that's enough additional mass for them to go supernova. So bring those two stars really close together and you've got a very bad day. Jeff Newman. Fraser, what are some cool new things that we should expect from Artemis 2? So Artemis 2, the plan for Artemis 2 is it's going to be very similar to the Apollo 8 mission, which flew around the moon and flew back to Earth with 
Artemis 1, we had this really strange maneuver where the spacecraft flew past the moon, got this gravitational slingshot, got kicked out pretty far away from the moon onto a very high orbit, and then it came back around and met up with the moon again, and then used the gravity of the moon to slingshot it back towards the Earth. But it had to do a bunch of burns throughout that trajectory. With the Artemis 2 mission, they're going to be doing a free return trajectory. And this is where like once they get on their final trajectory, and as they move towards the moon, they're going to be able to return to the Earth without having to fire their thrusters if they have to. And we saw that saved lives in the Apollo 13 mission, they did a free return trajectory, they went around the moon came back, and they were able to land and, and the crew were all safe. The main purpose of Artemis 2 is to test how the Orion capsule keeps four human beings alive for the time it takes to do a mission to the moon. I mean, that's the beginning and the end of it is that this will actually have people on board. And they will look out the window as they pass by the moon and they'll do a bunch of scientific reading. But mostly they're going to be taking blood tests and they're going to be checking the radiation levels and they're going to be making sure that the cooling system and the heating system and the computers and the telemetry and all of the parts that are necessary for them to be able to complete future missions are all working properly. It's a shakedown cruise of a new spacecraft with human beings on board. And if this works, then we move on to Artemis three, where astronauts get on board, they meet with a starship in orbit around the moon and land on the surface of the moon. So it gets more complicated. But this is the one where you just test to make sure does this spacecraft do its job to keep human beings alive for the time it's required to do a mission to the moon. Bravo 01. What are your thoughts on the Artemis 2 crew? Oh, you just knew I couldn't resist this question. And that's because uh, there's a Canadian on the crew. So today, when I'm recording this, we got the announcement from NASA on the names of the four people who are going to be going to the moon uh, as part of Artemis 2. So we've got Christina, Coach Reed Wiseman, Victor Glover, and Canadian Space Agency astronaut Jeremy Hansen. And that's awesome that a Canadian is going to be one of the people who is going to be flying around the moon as part of Artemis 2. Uh, you know, like, how do I feel about it? Like, I, I'm so excited that just anybody is going around the moon. Humans haven't been to the vicinity of the moon in 50 years. And it really is feeling more and more real every day that we're seeing the hardware come together. Like I know that NASA just stacked up the various components for the core stage of Artemis 2. You know, all the other components are in construction as well. And so to actually announce the names and show us the pictures of all the people who are going to be flying to the moon, it's pretty great. And, you know, we still have to wait. Uh, they're probably not going to fly until November 2024. And even if they, you know, like, come on, you know, there's going to be delays. So maybe into 2025, but it's all happening. And we know the space launch system works and it works well. And we know that the Orion capsule works and it works well. So all of the pieces are in place. Now we're just waiting for SpaceX to launch Starship to deliver the human landing system to the moon. And then all of the components will be in place to see humans set foot on the moon again. And like, I know it's been done before. Like I know astronauts went to the moon in the 1960s and 70s and walked around on the moon, and then they stopped doing it. But still, there's just something so exciting to know like I get excited just thinking about the fact that we that there is continual presence 
in space all the time that there are always astronauts on board the International Space Station, and now astronauts on board the Chinese Space Station, just going around and around the Earth all the time. And that there will be a time when there's going to be people up on the moon, you'll be able to like stand outside, look up at the moon, and know that there are astronauts on the moon right now. So this is all just a logical step on that process. And I'm excited. And I think most importantly, obviously, we need to build robotic arms that we will send to the moon. But but still, uh, congratulations, to everybody got accepted. And I know we'll be having a lot of updates as this goes on. If you like my answers to your questions, as well as the other things that we do at Universe Today, consider joining our Patreon club. This allows us to keep a minimum ads for everybody. Like as you can see, there are no ads in the middle of this video. Now as a patron, you get an ad free experience on university.com for life. Even if you unsubscribe, you'll get ad free videos, early access to interviews, as well as other perks that are exclusive to our Patreon community. And thanks to everyone who has already subscribed and welcome to our recent newcomers, Olivia Brianne Zank, Chris Sen, Sam Lytle, Michael Peterson, Scott Evers, Jimmy Jong, Goran Sedgholm, Richard Alton, Chris Ediger, and Ishe Oz. Join the club at patreon.com slash universe today. The Epic Raccoon. Could you explain exoplanet and star naming conventions? I've been trying to understand it. Sure. Um, now, there are many stars that are known to antiquity. When you think about Betelgeuse or Alderaan, Aldebaran? Which one comes from Star Wars? Uh-oh. <laughs> Rigel, serious. Um, we know about all of these star systems out there and because they're visible with the unaided eye. And so you can walk outside 100,000 years ago and recognize the stars. And so we named them. And a lot of the names that we have come from uh, Arab astronomers about 700 years ago, but then other stars have other names. And so all of those stars, formal hout, um, they all Alpha Centauri, I mean, they, you know, they're named after the constellations that they're in. They have sort of interesting names. Um, Mira, right? So anyway, all these stars. And that's like the ones that you can see with your eyes. And then there are lots and lots of other stars that are named after star catalogs. So once we start to set up telescopes and started to examine the night sky, then we realized that there were many, many more stars than we could see. And so the names of the stars are based on the catalog. So some of them are things like HD, I don't know what that stands for, or Sinbad, or Gliese. So there's all of these different star catalog names. And in many cases, the same object is in multiple catalogs with just different names. Even Betelgeuse will be have different designations in different star catalogs. And so that's how you get the catalog name off. It's just named after the survey that was done. The exoplanets are named after the star. Let's go with the example of Proxima Centauri, right? So Proxima Centauri is a red dwarf star. It's relatively close by. And so the star is Proxima Centauri A. And then the first planet that was discovered around Proxima Centauri becomes Proxima Centauri B. And then the next planet that's discovered becomes Proxima Centauri C. And you just keep adding up the letters. Now where this gets complicated is that the planets aren't necessarily going to be discovered in the order that they orbit around the star. And so you can imagine that you've got, if you actually later on 
learn the true final state of the star system, then the actual designations of the planets are going to jump around. But traditionally, when you see Proxima Centauri C, you know that that was the second exoplanet that was discovered at Proxima Centauri. Johnny G. Besides Andromeda, the Large Magellanic Cloud, and the Small Magellanic Cloud, are there any other galaxies we can see with our naked eye? There's one more galaxy that you can see with the unaided eye, and that is M33, which is the Triangulum Galaxy. So if you know where to look at the right time of the year, you look in the constellation of Andromeda, you can see M31, the Andromeda Galaxy. And if you live in the Southern Hemisphere, you can see the small and large Magellanic Clouds. I've only seen them once in my life when I was in Australia. It's pretty cool. They look like a cloud. And like, so does Andromeda, like it just looks like a cloud. But if you've got really dark skies, and you know where to look, and it's nearby to Andromeda, you can see the galaxy M33 in Triangulum. And it is another spiral galaxy, sort of in, in the same class as the Milky Way and Andromeda. And when you think about the local group, like we've got Andromeda, the Milky Way and M33, those are the three big galaxies. And then we've got a few dozen dwarf galaxies mixed in with us, large and small Magellanic clouds, and then a bunch of the Sagittarius galaxies and other ones around us. And that's it. Like that is the local group, everything else, all the other galaxies that are out there in the universe are not gravitationally bound to us. And over time, thanks to the expansion of the universe and the acceleration of dark energy, they're all going to move away from us. And eventually, they're going to fall over the cosmic horizon. The only galaxies that are going to be stuck with us are the ones that I mentioned, and we're all part of this local group, and we will eventually gravitationally like Milky Way is going to merge with Andromeda and in then M33 is going to join the party and all the dwarf galaxies are going to be part of this as well. And eventually, we will turn into this giant ball of stars, this giant elliptical galaxy. And then all of the other galaxies are just going to keep moving away from us, fall over the cosmic horizon and just disappear forever. So yeah, like Andromeda and M33, they're our buddies, and you can see them with your eyes. ABQ Halsey. If you're on an asteroid that was just at the Roche limit of a planet, what would it feel like on the surface? So this idea of the Roche limit, right, that that the moment that a planet gets so close to a star or whatever, or an asteroid gets so close to a planet, then the the force that's holding this object together, the gravitational force is no longer strong enough or compared to the tidal forces are starting to shear this object apart, then it starts to get torn up. But if you were standing on the surface of the asteroid, and it wasn't rotating, then you would be able to jump off the front of the asteroid and probably drift away from it. Because you're like very much at that limit you, you know, the force of gravity is what's holding that asteroid together. When you think about something like say asteroid Bennu, right, it's this jumbled up pile of rocks and rubble. And when it crosses the Roche limit of getting close to a planet, then it'll start to pull itself into this stream. And so if you're standing right at the very top of this asteroid, then you could jump and you would sort of be at the head of this stream as it's starting to to get pulled apart. And there was a piece of research that came out fairly recently that we reported on, on Universe Today that's kind of similar, which is that when you think about Dimorphos and Didymus, 
the DART mission crashed into asteroid Dimorphos, but it's orbiting around asteroid Didymus. And Didymus is turning like just, just a few hours to rotate. And as they were coming in, they found that there were rocks in the system. And what it appears is that Didymus is, is rotating so quickly that at its equator, rocks are lifting off from the surface of the asteroid, and they're sort of floating around in the environment around Didymus. But then, and this is the part that gets really cool, is they then get sort of off the, the away from the equator of Didymus. And now the gravity that's holding them is like a little stronger, the rotation a little less. And so they drift back down and land gently onto the surface of the asteroid again. And so you've got this process where the asteroid is sort of flattening itself out as it's turning. Rocks are floating off the surface, they're sort of finding their way back to the surface and settling back down again. And if Didymus was rotating any faster, it would just tear itself apart into pieces. And so if you were standing on the surface of Didymus, as it was turning, you could jump off and be in escape velocity, you would just fly off into space, or maybe you would jump off. And then you would drift around Didymus for a while. And then the gravity would pull you gently back down to the surface of the asteroid and you would land again, but it might take you a couple of years, but it's pretty cool. Andrew Richens, does NASA plan to land on an asteroid by 2025? I don't know of any NASA missions that have any plans to land on asteroids in the next couple of years. Like the next big missions that are coming out of NASA, you're looking at the Europa Clipper mission, you're looking at the Titan Dragonfly that's going to send a helicopter to Titan. So that's pretty cool, but not landing on an asteroid. But there is a lot of interesting missions that will be going to asteroids very soon. One, and this, I guess this is not exactly an asteroid, but the Japanese Space Agency called the Martian Moons Exploration Mission. And that's going to be a spacecraft that's going to fly to Phobos and Deimos, which are the moons of Mars. And it's going to try to drop landers onto the surface of Phobos. And there's going to be like a collection of them, maybe a rover, but definitely a lander. And so you're going to see a landing on an object that is a moon of Mars, but it's kind of like an asteroid. The United Arab Emirates are planning on sending their asteroid mission in 2028. And one of their goals is sort of basing the technology on the Hope mission, which was at Mars. But one of the plans is to try to send a lander as part of the mission. So they're going to find many different asteroids and probably go past like almost 10 asteroids as part of this mission and examine them. And then when it reaches its final asteroid, it's going to try to land on the asteroid and that'll be sort of its final resting place forever. And the last one is the Tianwen mission two from China. And this is going to be a mission that's going to be a sample return from an asteroid. So very similar to the Hayabusa two mission and the Osiris Rex mission, they're going to fly to an asteroid, land on the asteroid, retrieve a sample and bring it back to Earth. So NASA doesn't have any missions planned to visit asteroids in the next couple of years. But a lot of other nations do. And this is one of the things that I find really exciting about sort of the modern realm of space exploration, you've got China, the United Arab Emirates, and the Japanese Space Agency all sending missions to small places, <laughs> asteroids uh, within the next couple of years. So it's a pretty exciting future. Big brown sound. Is it truly cold in space? 
To have a temperature, you need to have vibrating atoms. And so if you have a place where there are no vibrating atoms, a true perfect vacuum, then there is no way for you to describe the temperature of that place. But the second that you put one atom into that space, then how quickly that atom is vibrating is going to tell you the temperature. And it could be like just above absolute zero, or it could be millions of degrees in that one atom. And so one of the things that's really interesting is that there are places in space where the atoms are moving so quickly that you would measure the temperature as in the millions of degrees Celsius, that they are a plasma, they are incredibly hot. And yet you could fly through even without a spacesuit, right? You just fly through atoms that are millions of degrees, and you wouldn't even feel it. it you would feel cold. Because the density of those atoms in that volume of space is very low. And so once you, you know, think about, I don't know, if um, I'll give you an example, right? Like when you think about boiling water. And if you're really far away from boiling water, and there is steam coming off that water and it is at 100 degrees Celsius, right? It's boiling, you can feel the steam and it isn't painful. But as you get closer and closer to the boiling water, then the density, the amount of steam that's coming off of that water is hitting your hand and it's starting to hurt. And of course, if you immersed your hand in boiling water, and do not do that, then you would burn yourself really badly. And so it is about sort of the density of the atoms as they are hitting your hand that is causing the damage. And the same thing is going on. So if you're looking out in the universe, there are places which are made of solid stuff at a very low temperature or places that are almost empty of atoms and yet at a very high temperature. And so is it truly cold in space, you're going to have to ask each individual atom in the universe, how cold are you? And each atom will give you an answer. And then you can decide, is that cold or is that hot? Matter hat, any crowdfunding for bringing our sun to another star? No, that sounds expensive. Um, like, there is a way, like if you wanted to take the sun and move it close to another star, it is theoretically possible. Uh, there's this really cool idea called a scat off drive. And so what you do is like, we know that the sun is putting out all of this radiation all the time. And we know that when photons are emitted by an object, it causes a kick in the opposite direction. But because the sun is firing off its photons in all directions, it balances out and the sun just sits there. But if you were able to put this giant hemisphere mirror around one side of the sun that had mass to it, then that hemisphere mirror would be pulling at the sun with its gravity. But then the radiation that's coming off the sun would be bouncing off of this mirror and imparting a force on it that would perfectly balance. And the sum result is that the sun would start to pull itself with its gravity towards this mirror. But at the same time, it's pushing the mirror away with its radiation pressure. And so it would follow this mirror wherever you wanted to put it. And so over hundreds of millions or billions of years, you could move the sun around in the Milky Way and have it go many light years away and definitely get it to the point where it's close to another star, you could maneuver it so that it goes into a binary 
orbit with another star system, whatever you want to do. And like, this is science fictiony kind of thinking. But one of the ideas is that, you know, as a futuristic civilization gets more and more powerful, gets more able to deal with the resources that they have at their disposal, they'll start to move the stars in their galaxy into a configuration that is more useful to whatever it is that they want to do. Like, when you look at a city, right, it is rocks and dirt and trees that are rearranged into a configuration that is better for human beings to live in. And you can imagine a future civilization moving an entire galaxy's parts around to get to a configuration that is more useful for whatever purpose they have. I don't know, computation, travel time, being able to have a manageable empire, who knows. And so there have been billions of years. And so there has been time in the universe for civilizations to have reorganized their entire galaxy into other forms. And astronomers have actually looked for this because a galaxy that is arranged like a giant donut in space would be very obvious, or a perfect sphere or something like there are things that we could look out into the universe and see and go, okay, an intelligent civilization made that thing. And so far, we haven't seen it. And as you know, thanks to JWST, we're able to see galaxies right out to hundreds of millions of years after the Big Bang. Now, is there a crowdfunding uh, goal to do this? Not yet, but you should start it. Um, I'm sure you can raise the hundreds of septillion dollars that it would cost to build a giant mirror to begin our journey to another star system. I mean, when you think about ways to go to other star systems, if you if you like take your whole sun with you, and all the planets that are orbiting around it seems like a very civilized way to do it. Like it's, it's like being on a very slow cruise ship, you know, with lots of space, and you're just like, you're not in any kind of rush. I like it. So so I'll kick in, you know, a couple of bucks. Mr. Transposen, how about a lunar in situ resource gathering rocket or a probe that uses photovoltaic energy to launch itself 200 feet in the air with springs? So there are plans to test in situ resource utilization on the moon, you know, NASA is working on a bunch of projects to test this. And I've, I've interviewed a ton of scientists about this kind of thing. And so when the next batch of spacecraft go to the moon, there will be some experiments to test out different ideas, like, can you crunch down the lunar regolith and extract water out of it? Can you crunch down the regolith and use it for some kind of building material? There have been plans to build photovoltaic cells out of lunar regolith, there have been plans to build battery systems out of lunar regolith and Martian regolith. And when you think about how expensive it is to go to the moon, like it is in the millions of dollars per kilogram to send payloads to the surface of the moon, it's really expensive. And so what would seem ridiculous, right? Like I'm not going to pay a million dollars for a liter of water here on Earth start to make sense when you're trying to do this on the surface of the moon. And so the economics, when launch costs are so extreme, but over time, as we get more and more facilities on the moon or on Mars, then the cost will come down, then it'll make more sense to just build the stuff locally, or send stuff from the moon to Mars, and vice versa. So we really kind of know what the future of in situ resource utilization is going to be the Chinese in one of their next missions to the moon, they're going to be testing a bunch of technologies for in situ resource utilization. Also, when they send that 1012 mission to an asteroid, they're going to be testing out methods of trying to harvest 
resources from an asteroid, try to produce propellant and things like that right there on the surface. So there is such an interest in space exploration. And there's such a just like a knowledge of how expensive things are to fly from Earth, that people are really trying to look for ways that we could solve these problems, make the stuff that we need locally out of the local materials. All right, those are all the questions that we had this week. Thank you everyone for asking questions in the YouTube comments. Thanks to everyone who showed up and asked questions live during our show. Once again, we do this show live every Monday at 5pm Pacific. So you should see a notification for the next event, subscribe to it, join the channel, click the notification bell, you will get plenty of warning from YouTube when the event is about to start. I promise. I don't promise. All right. And don't forget to vote. We'll see you next week. If you want to stay on top of all the important space news, join my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word, there are no ads, and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to David Giltonen, Modso, George, Jeremy Matter, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Andrew Gross, and Josh Schultz who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.